exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. Welcome on this lovely Tuesday evening. In national news today, the Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords is able to breathe on her own, although she remains in critical condition, according to Reuters. Giffords was shot through the head by a gunman in Tucson, Arizona on Saturday, killing six people, including a federal judge, a nine-year-old girl, and one of Giffords' aides. Verizon announced today that it will begin selling the iPhone 4 in early February. The announcement means AT&T will no longer be the exclusive wireless carrier for the iPhone in the U.S. It also means that iPhone users may find a solution to one of their ongoing gripes, the quality of calls using AT&T's network, according to NPR. The Verizon iPhone will operate on Verizon's existing 3G network. In Michigan News, two organizations have begun a study on how best to separate the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River watersheds to prevent invasive species such as Asian carp from migrating between them, according to the Associated Press. The study is sponsored by the Great Lakes Commission, which includes the region's eight states and the Great Lakes and St. Lawrence Cities Initiative. They announced today that the study is underway now that they've reached their $2 million funding goal. The money is coming from a half-dozen private foundations. A team of engineers, biologists, and other experts will do the technical work. The two groups say their study should help the federal government reach a quicker decision about whether and how to separate the two watersheds. And on Exposure Tonight, we'll be talking about health care, food, tourism, and jobs. Um, The special guest includes... Cindy Perman, blogger for CNBC.com, and she will talk about the job outlook for 2011, so tune in to hear that interview later in the hour. But in the studio now, we have MSU medical sociologist Harry Perlstadt, and he's here to talk about the Republicans' attempt to repeal the U.S. health care bill. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So why is it that the Republicans want to repeal this bill? Because this was part of their uh, fall campaign. Uh, They made a pledge to... uh, uh, repeal uh, and replace the health care law. And uh, this is uh, having won the House. This is their opportunity to fulfill that campaign promise. And when I was looking at some of the, the reasons why they, you know, their motivations behind it, some say that some argue that parts of the bill are unconstitutional. And, and why, why would some people believe that? Well, basically, there is no constitutional right to health in the U.S. Constitution, like there's the right to bear arms or the right to free press or the right to assemble. It's just not written in there. Uh, There is the Interstate Commerce Clause, which gives Congress the power to regulate interstate commerce. The question is sort of twofold. Uh, Is insurance interstate commerce? And uh, to some extent, uh, insurance has always been sold on a local level. On the other hand, companies like Blue Cross or Kaiser on the West Coast are multi are selling insurance across many states, although they may have separate finance uh, subsidiaries or franchises within each state. 
Uh, so the question is, so that's one question. Can Congress really regulate or uh, interstate commerce, insurance, health insurance through interstate commerce? And then uh, part of that is also the uh, uh, mandate that in the, all individuals would have to have some form of health insurance by 2014. And so those, those two uh, are the aspects where people are, are uh, asking about the constitutionality of the law. And you're talking about um, people having required to have insurance by 2014. When does the law take full effect? The law will not take full effect until 2019 or 2020. There are certain provisions uh, that most of the provisions on the mandates uh, will come into effect on January 1st, 2014. Uh, but there are some concerning uh, unions and, uh, and uh, expensive health care packages called Cadillac plans uh, that will not come into effect until 2018. And then the final closing of the uh, uh, what's called the uh, Medicaid D, the prescription uh, gap coverage, will not be entirely closed until January 1st, 2020. So what would happen if the, bill, if the bill was repealed, and what do you think the chances are that it will be repealed? Oh, well, to answer the last part first, I think the chances of it being repealed are very small. Uh, the Democrats still have a majority in the Senate, and uh, President Obama can, of course, veto it. It would take a two-thirds vote uh, in both houses of Congress to overturn the veto, and that is highly unlikely. Uh, in terms of, um, I'm sorry, what was the, the, the first half? Um, what would happen if the bill oh, was happen? repealed? Well, uh, parts of the bill have already taken effect. For example, of interest to college students uh, is that uh, within this year, all health insurances companies are now uh, offering coverage uh, through parents that children can be covered to the age of 26 through their parents. Uh, allegedly, or it's possible that if that if the bill was totally repealed, the insurance companies would no longer have to offer it, or in their next round of uh, of uh, of, of uh, coverage and, and new premiums, they could make adjustments. Uh, there's also in the law that's already gone into effect that people can get insurance with pre-existing conditions, meaning anything, if you're uninsured, if you're pregnant or you have diabetes or anything else up to HIV AIDS, uh, under the new law, they cannot deny you new insurance if you have a pre-existing condition. That certainly would change to some degree if the uh, uh, bill was uh, revoked. Um, and uh, uh, there's also the beginnings of uh, states having to put into place a claims, uh, an appeal, a claims appeal and review process, which some states, I think, like Michigan have and other states like California don't. And uh, that's just starting out, but that would come to an end as well. So talk about your work as it relates to the health care system and what are some insights that you've gained over the years? Uh, well, I'm a medical sociologist and I, I do evaluation research on health care uh, programs, a variety of them, and then I, of course, teach uh, uh, about the healthcare system, and uh, I will be lecturing, and I have lectured on the uh, healthcare plan. So I've been watching this uh, fairly closely. Uh, what I've what I've come away with in the last uh, nine months since the bill was passed uh, was that a lot of this rests on values that uh, some people value uh, their independence, value the ability to make their own choices about health care or a lot of other things, economic choices in life, uh, and they don't want the government either getting involved with health care or telling them that they have to purchase certain kinds of insurance, uh, whereas other people are much more comfortable in a value kind of way of having the government uh, get involved in these sort of things in the same way that the government's involved with, say, Social Security or the government, allow, uh, the state governments uh, can't force people who drive to purchase uh, automobile insurance. 
And what do you think are our biggest problems or challenges uh, to, today, to today's healthcare system? Uh, well, the biggest challenge is that we have approximately 15% of the population that is uncovered and has to use either emergency rooms or urgy care centers or does not get uh, health care at all. We are the only major democratic western industrialized country that has this situation. Almost every other country, uh, Germany, France, Italy, Sweden, uh, UK, and so on, uh, almost everybody, over 95% of their population is covered, and to some extent their health care system and their outcomes are much better than ours. Well, here in the studio is MSU medical sociologist Harry Perlstadt, and he's here to uh, talk about um, how the Republicans want to repeal the the health care bill that was put into place last year under the Obama administration. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. My pleasure. You're listening to Impact Exposure. First. Hey, what floor are you going to? <clears throat> oh, uh, three. Thanks. <coughs> hey, didn't we, uh, have... Yeah, that one class. Yeah, that's so funny to, <laughs> to see you, because I <coughs> thought maybe we could, uh... Would you ever want to, um... <coughs> I was wondering if you... If I could stick my finger in your eye. What? No. Oh, <clears throat> I just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex Ew, in my pocket. that's uh, so gross. I thought we could, you know, just stick my finger Ugh. in your eye. Is that weird? No! Don't touch me! What's wrong with you? Oh, sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. Free. Studies show that three-quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Or at cdc.gov slash clean hands. Impact 89 FM. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. From 10 p.m. until midnight Sunday nights, listen to the Impact Afterglow, where you can hear a variety of relaxed tracks to help you ease into the start of a new week. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and on the phone is George Zimmerman. He is Michigan's, he is the Michigan Tourism Director, and he's here to talk about Pure Michigan. Welcome to the show, George Zimmerman. Thanks. Glad to be on. So my first question is, how and when did um, Pure Michigan start? Uh, we launched that campaign in 2006. Uh, we um, were, we, we had gotten some budget increases, and we're going to expand to some new markets. And one of the big questions was, do we have the right campaign, the right branding uh, to enter those new markets? And we decided we didn't. And so that's when we started to work on creating Pure Michigan. Now, when you, you're talking about budgeting, and I know I talked with a representative from, from Pure Michigan around last April, um, right when Michigan had kind of reduced the amount of money that it had the previous year, um, and I'm wondering, what, what has happened since, um, I guess, last April as far as just budgets and how much you guys are able to work with? Yeah, we, we're still actually on the budget roller coaster to some extent. We, uh, let, you know, two years ago, in 2009, we had um, $28 million, which was the largest budget in Michigan tourism history, and launched national advertising for the first time ever and did a lot of other things. And, uh, but last year, we got cut to about $17 million because of the, you know, issues with the state budget and everything else. 
Um, and it came kind of late in the year for us. We did, did um, once again, advertise nationally, which was great, um, though we got started a little bit later than we would have liked. Uh, but now we, uh, this year, again, have about $17 million so far. Uh, we will be doing national advertising again starting in March, uh, which is for the spring-summer season. So, you know, we're still, still working on it. So what all does Pure Michigan um, do for the state as far as tourism? I know I've seen ads and billboards, but um, what are some other things? Like, for example, your website. You, I know you um, offer a lot of information there as well, but, but what all does Pure Michigan do for the state? Yeah, well, you know, we are the state's uh, tourism promotion agency, and that really encompasses a wide range of activities. I mean, certainly the Pure Michigan advertising is probably the most visible. Um, and, again, we, that's an award-winning campaign uh, that. You know, one of the great things about it is not only does it win awards, but it actually works. Um, you know, we do research every year that shows how many visitors came um, to Michigan because of the advertising, uh, how much they spent, and how much the state uh, netted on that spending through sales tax and other taxes. And typically, the state gets back about 2 to $3 for every dollar we spend on, on the advertising, so that's a good deal. Um, but the second thing is, you know, you mentioned our website, Michigan.org. It is obviously uh, where we urge consumers to go to get information in our commercials, and uh, we're happy to report again that uh, for 2010, for the uh, fourth year in a row now, uh, we actually had more traffic at Michigan.org than any other state tourism website. So we had more visitors to our website than Florida did to theirs or California did to theirs, which I think would probably surprise a lot of people. Wow. So where do you think Michigan ranks um, in comparison to other states in, in terms of tourism? Well, visitors spend about $15 billion, and so, you know, we're in, we're in the top ten as far as visitor spending. But I think that the, the big thing about Pure Michigan and the national campaign is that we know there are tens of millions of Americans who, you know, really have never even thought about coming to Michigan for a vacation. Um, and when you consider the quality of the product we have, you know, what we have to offer visitors, both the urban city product we have but, and also the outdoor product and the up north product and, you know, the great golf and Mackinac Island and kayaking and everything else, you know, we should be attracting a lot more visitors from around the country than we are. So that's why the national advertising is so important to us, and uh, and that's why we're we are grateful to be able to do that again for the third year. We we think we can attract literally tens of millions of new visitors to the state if we only keep getting the word out. And and I also understand that the Pure Michigan campaign will now be used to lure in businesses, um, not just tourism. Um, how how do you how do you um, envision that being done? Yeah, you know that's interesting. We're and we're we're working on that right now. Um, the new head of the MEDC, our new CEO Mike Finney, um, announced that on his second day on the job. So he'd been thinking about that, um, and I and I think it's a great idea. We we have talked about this uh, since 2006. We certainly think that. Pure Michigan can mean more than just the state as a destination, and in so many ways it already does. I mean, this is kind of happening, happening organically. I'll give you an example. When uh, Ernie Harwell, the uh, legendary announcer for the Detroit Tigers, passed away, um, the Grand Rapids Press, in doing his obituary, referred to him as Pure Michigan. Hmm. Now, that wasn't about tourism, obviously, but, but, but what they were saying was that the way they used that phrase was that, you know, something that's kind of intrinsically, inherently positively Michigan. That's kind of what they meant by it. And so I think that that certainly applies to uh, business things going on, too. Now, what do you think will happen with the Pure Michigan, ca Michigan campaign under the new administration here in Michigan? Well, you know, the, the uh, Governor Snyder was very supportive during the campaign, and uh, we've already had one chance to meet with him. Uh, so we're just getting started in that relationship, obviously. But, you know, I think it's going to go very well. I mean, he, throughout his campaign, uh, was very supportive of Pure Michigan. I think the fact that they 
are, are expanding its use to cover uh, business marketing and business attraction as well, uh, I think is also very positive. You know, I mean, they've only been in office for 10 days so far, so, you know, I guess this is day 11, but, uh, you know, so we've, we're just getting started with them, but we're very optimistic that the, the campaign will be embraced and expanded uh, under the Snyder administration. And how do you believe that the Pure Michigan campaign has helped the state since it began in 2006? Well, you know, we created it for one very specific purpose, and that and it certainly has achieved that, and that is to attract visitors from out of state to, the, to, to Michigan. And again, we do, do research every year that confirms that's what's happening. But I think the other thing is that it's put a new face um, on Michigan outside of the state. And, you know, as a state, since we were only advertising regionally up until a couple years ago, um, many Americans' impression of Michigan was driven basically by the news coverage about the state, typically about the auto industry. And so I, th- I often joke that uh, I think that out-of-staters, often their mental image of what Michigan was, based on that news coverage, um, was a basically an endless sea of closed factories. Mm-hmm. Um, just because of, you know, kind of all the down news, especially in the last decade, though it certainly has improved recently. But, you know, we went through a long spell of just, you know, kind of negative news about the auto industry and what's happening there and consolidations and plant closings and job layoffs and all that. So I, I think that, you know, that kind of drumbeat of negative news is not conducive to getting people to come visit your state. I mean, if that's what their mental image is, boy, what, you know, there is something like, man, that place sounds like a wreck. You know, who would want to go there for anything? Um, so I think what Pure Michigan has done um, since it was launched, and especially since we went national in 2009, is it's really put a new face on what Michigan is, and it's an accurate uh, portrayal of Michigan. So, you know, we're not an endless sea of closed factories. We're much more, you know, we have close, some closed factories, yes, but we have the rest of what Michigan is, too. So I think that it's ended up helping in ways that we didn't really even intend. Yeah, I, I, I must say, because you're talking about all the, you know, um, factories and stuff and um, the billboards I think are, are beautiful that, that show off Michigan um, and, and I want to tell you a story that also kind of ties into our next guest that we'll have on the show um, my mother attended the Michigan Culinary Tourism Food Alliance Conference oh, yeah. uh, yesterday and she said that she ran into someone that um, I guess is a painter in New York City and he started selling his paintings of just the coastline of Michigan. And um, people are just going bonkers over his paintings because they say it reminds him of the coastline of France. Uh, so I thought that was very interesting that, you know, coastline of Michigan and then France. So Absolutely. Well, I think that, again, you know, we, and we've heard from so many people around the country, uh, and that's one thing that the campaign has done also is that it motivates a lot of consumer feedback because it's our, our advertising agency, McCain Erickson, has done such a brilliant job with, you know, kind of the emotional appeal of the campaign, especially in the broadcast versions of it in the radio and television. And so we get these emails from all over the country, and some of it, some of those emails are from people who used to live here or went to school here or whatever, and, and they're, you know, kind of saying, wow, it makes me homesick, and I want to come back and visit. Um, but I think then we, then we get a whole bunch of other ones from people who have never been here and never even considered coming here saying, you know, I've been lots of places. Um, never thought about a vacation in Michigan, but because of what you're doing, I'm going to, I'm going to try it out. Well, that's excellent. Um, my final question for you is, or what are your hopes for the upcoming years as far as tourism in Michigan and the Pure Michigan campaign? Well, you know, we actually had a, uh, 2010 was our best year in years. Uh, not only were we up, but, we, but Michigan, for the first time in probably a decade, uh, did better than the national average as far as growth in the tourism industry. So, you know, we had a beautiful summer as far as weather. We certainly hope that that continues. I think we've had a pretty good uh, winter weather as far as uh, skiing, snowmobiling, winter sports. We're off to a good start there. So I, I think what, um, what we're hoping for is that we 
kind of move further up the list of places that people want to visit, particularly for a summer vacation. That's our that's kind of our strongest season to bring in people from out of state and from all over the country. Well, on the phone is George Zimmerman. He is Michigan Tourism Director, and he was on the phone to talk about Pure Michigan. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks. Glad to do it. It begins with a slow dance of turning leaves and crescendos in a trillion trees of flame. For the next several weeks, the curtain rises on nature's greatest show as the 19 million acres of woods called Michigan slowly explode in a frenzy of color. The show plays along every stretch of highway and coastline in every city and town. Admission is free and great seats are available everywhere. We can go to the movies this weekend, we can stay home and watch TV, or we can get up, get out, and go see something we'll remember for the rest of our lives, an entire state in its annual blaze of glory. This show is appropriate for all ages. This show is Pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and on the phone is Linda Jones. She is the co-chair of the Michigan Culinary Tourism Food Alliance Conference, which happened yesterday at the Kellogg Center here in East Lansing, Michigan. Welcome to the show, Linda Jones. Great to talk to you, Emily. So tell me about the conference. Why was it held, and, and what were some of the goals of the conference? Well, we started what we call the Michigan Culinary Tourism Alliance about a year ago to see if there was interest in bringing people together to talk about how to promote Michigan as a culinary destination within the confines of the Pure Michigan campaign. So that was a great lead into this. Um, And then also to help restaurants uh, able to get more local food and beverage so that when people travel in Michigan and they stop at restaurants, they get an exposure to our local cuisine uh, when they travel. So there's been two goals of our alliance that's been meeting for about a year. And very early in our discussions, it became apparent there were were way more people interested in this topic than we could accommodate into a bimonthly board meeting. So we started making plans back last spring to have a one-day workshop where anyone that had any interest in this topic could come, learn a little bit about the topic, learn a little bit about what our group has been doing, and then figure out ways that they can engage in their local communities to develop the culinary tourism assets that they have to offer to the traveling public and organize those a little bit better so that people who are looking for these food and beverage experiences when they travel will be able to find them. So I understand that agricultural and tourism are the state's second and third largest industries and that Michigan is only second to California in our agricultural diversity. So what is it that Michigan is well known for as far as its agricultural sector? Well, I think we can't point to one thing that Michigan is best known for, which I think actually makes it kind of a cool thing because we have this great agricultural diversity and we have different things around the state that we're known for. Pasties in the Upper Peninsula. We grow a lot of sugar beets um, in the Thumb area. We have a great fruit-growing region on the west side of the state. So because our state has got some unique geography to it, we have a lot of different growing regions that are conducive to a wide range of, of products. And when you add in the fish from the Great Lakes, um, morel mushrooms that are abundant in our forests, uh, maple syrup from our maple, maple forests, really you start to t- do a list of what we can produce and share with guests here in Michigan. And it's a pretty amazing 
list of, of things that we can we can create great experiences around. Now, t- I, I want to know a little bit more of, about the conference. What was the overall vibe of the conference? And I understand there were there were work groups that would kind of generate new ideas for the for um, you know the idea of Michigan culinary tourism. Right. Well, we had over two hundred people attending the conference, including a lot of media. And the, uh, we started off the day with a general session, a bit of an overview about what the Alliance has been doing. We had someone from the International Culinary Tourism Association in Oregon, and that's a worldwide association that has members that are working on culinary tourism around the world. So we had a presentation from that person, Melody Johnson, from the International Culinary Tourism Association. And then um, we broke into some panel groups where we could hear some best practices from different groups that were built around the theme one of three different themes. The first theme was the theme of farm to table. So how do we get product that we grow onto restaurant tables? And so people that attended that breakout session got to hear from uh, distributors of, of farm products, growers of farm products, and restaurants who are utilizing farm products in their restaurants successfully. So that was one breakout group. The second breakout group was called Building Lodging Packages, and that is where we tried to give examples of where resorts and hotels have developed uh, packages with overnight stays combined with wine trail tours or farmer's market tours or cooking classes or whatever it might be that people are interested in. And by including an overnight package in these experiences, we're able to extend people's stay in Michigan or in a particular region, which creates more economic activity for that particular region. So that was the second breakout, building lodging packages. And the third breakout session was marketing your culinary destination. So we heard from some people who have been doing a lot of festival and event planning and promotion, uh, convention and visitors bureaus who have taken on a culinary tourism goal as part of their goals. And so they were able to share their experiences with the groups to give them ideas to take back into their communities. So that was the morning. Wow, that's a, that seems jam-packed with activities. Um, what do you think, what was, what did you come out of the conference with and, and feeling accomplished? What was, I guess, your biggest accomplishment um, from the conference that you observed? Well, we did find out from the feedback that we received from people that many people made great connections with new potential partners, and that was one of the goals of the conference because we brought together people from these two large but uh, diverse industries, the agriculture sector and the tourism and hospitality sector. And actually, tourism and hospitality are a little bit separate, too, because a lot of restaurants don't necessarily see themselves as in the tourism industry. So we brought together people from the hospitality industry, the tourism industry, and the agriculture industries, and to meet one another and find out who were people that were interested in this in their communities. So, for instance, people from the Traverse City area with an interest in culinary tourism had a chance in the afternoon to huddle together and come up with some action plans that they could take back to their community with some new partners that they came all the way to East Lansing to meet. Mm -hmm. Now, also, the co-founder and partner and uh, co-founding partner and CEO of Zingerman's Bread also spoke at the conference. What did he have to say? Well, Ari Weinswig, who is a very uh, well-respected business person and leads the Zingerman's community of businesses, um, he has a great message for this audience because it's all about creating a unique and authentic culinary destination. And certainly Zingerman's has done that in the Ann Arbor area by creating a number of places in Ann Arbor where people can go and experience great quality foods, 
uh, great customer service, a lot of educational material about food and beverage that's really attractive to people. And his message was, you know, to be authentic, uh, to value your employees as well as your customers, uh, treat people as you want to be treated. And uh, he, he quoted a lot from a new book that uh, he's written about uh, about guides to biz- guide to business practices. Uh, and he was was able to uh, you know autograph copies of that book after his presentation. But he's got a lot of great messages for this audience uh, because of what they they've accomplished at at Zingerman's in Ann Arbor. So, what are your hopes for culinary tourism in Michigan, and how do you envision it expanding here in the state? Well, we have two key partners in this initiative, and that's Travel Michigan with the Pure Michigan Campaign and the Michigan Restaurant Association. So the three of us founding partners will be reviewing the feedback from the conference yesterday and determining how to shape our activities going forward. We've been developing what we call foodie tours on the Michigan.org website, on Travel Michigan's website. So you can get more information about those foodie tours by going to Michigan.org under things to do and road trips you will find uh, foodie tours and you will also find wine trails and harvest trails and other trails but foodie tours we developed as part of the michigan culinary tourism alliance to give some suggested destinations in nine or ten regions of the state for people who are particularly interested in food so for instance in the east lansing area on the foodie tour for the mid-michigan area we list michigan brewing company Mm-hmm. Travelers Club International Restaurant and Tuba Museum, the state room at the Kellogg Hotel and Conference Center, which has one of the best Michigan wine lists in the whole state, the MSU Dairy Store, which is certainly a unique attraction for people that love food and ice cream, Bergdorf's Winery in Hazlitt, the Wrought Iron Grill in Owasso, Uncle John's Cider Mill, Sweet Delicious Pies in DeWitt, Michigan, the Lansing City Market, which has newly been refurbished this past year and has a really nice ambiance, a lot of live music often going on there. And then in Portland, Michigan, there's Cheeky Monkey's Coffee House. So these are all family-owned and operated businesses that offer a real unique experience for people who have interest in food experiences when they visit the mid-Michigan area. Well, that's, so that's one of the goals that the that Alliance has accomplished in the past year. So we were able to share these with the attendees at the conference yesterday and challenge them to go back and think up additional foodie tours that they might want to propose for their regions. Well, that's that's great. I, I, I'm proud to say that I, I've been to most except for maybe three of those that you listed. So Good for you. <laughs> so how, can, how can, else can people get involved or, or know more about the Michigan Culinary Tourism Alliance? Well, uh, going if they're interested in uh, sampling some of these experiences, going to Michigan.org is one way to do that. But to find out a little bit more about the upcoming activities of the Culinary Tourism Alliance, they can go to a website called michiganwines.com slash culinary tourism. And that's where we've posted a lot of the uh, notes from our meetings, some of the reports we've issued. I should mention that this initiative, this two-year program, was funded by the U.S. Department of Agriculture under the Specialty Crop Block Grant Program, which is designed to help improve the competitiveness in the global market of Michigan specialty food producers. And most of the products that we've mentioned um, in the last few minutes are all considered to be specialty crops, which is non-program crops. The program crops are corn, corn, wheat, soybean, which have special assistance from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. But Senator Debbie Stabenow 
really fought hard in the last farm bill to create programming that would help the crops that are grown in states like Michigan, where there is a more diverse spe- uh, specialty crop industry. And those industries need help, too, in becoming and staying competitive in the marketplace. So we really appreciate um, the, the support of USDA in helping us start some of these initiatives. So michiganwines.com slash culinary tourism. The reason the information is available on the michiganwines.com website is that the Michigan Grape and Wine Industry Council provided the leadership for this initiative when it started about a year and a half, two years ago with this grant application. And they're providing some match funds to the grant to uh, kickstart and get this initiative launched. Well, excellent. Well, on the phone is Linda Jones. She is a part of the Michigan Grape and Wine Industry Council, and she was here to talk about the Michigan Culinary Tourism Alliance Conference that happened yesterday here in East Lansing. Linda Jones, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Emily. Great to talk to you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. here Th- thanks again man it was good wait time. you were uh you were hitting it pretty hard tonight are you, are you good to drive heck yeah i am amazing at driving yeah man you sure i mean i can call a cab or we fine. can uh, we can get somebody to take you home yeah, you know? yeah don't worry i'm good okay uh hey text me when you get back okay stop right there this is stupid he's drunk friends don't let friends drink and drive ever a message from 88.9 the impact for more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime Time. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights from 8 until 10 p.m., the Impact Flashback is your retro music alternative, playing your old favorites from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Only on Impact Primetime. In a world where radio was repetitive and mundane, in a time when FM is plagued by the same 15 songs, an army of new songs are called to battle, and only the strongest survive. Every Sunday night from 8 till 10, sit or spin, only on Impact 89FM. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and on the phone is Barbara Anders of the Michigan Department of Human Services, and she's here to talk about the change in the food stamp distribution in Michigan. Welcome to the show, Barbara Anders. Thank you. So talk about the change in the in the food stamp distribution here in the state. Well, this is a change that we have started. Uh, it actually started this just this month, and what we're doing is we're changing the schedule so that instead of all the food benefits being issued in the first uh, 10 days of the month from the 3rd to the 10th, we're now going to be issuing them from the 3rd to the 21st. So we're pulling it out over a length of time. It's going to take 11 months to actually uh, complete the cycle and have everybody on their correct dates. And why was this change implemented? Well, a couple reasons. Um, Most Probably one of the biggest ones is the fact that this will allow our retail partners, um, like the, the farmer's markets and the grocery stores, to keep a better supply of fresh foods, such as produce, fruits and vegetables, meat, dairy products, over the whole time, the whole 21 days, as opposed to having to have a huge amount in the first 10 days of the month. It will also help them for their scheduling so that they can have staff on hand to 
handle the influx of people that come in once their benefits are loaded onto their cards. So you're mentioning um, the idea of produce at farmers markets and, and um, how you know stores and, and farmers markets want to be able to spread that produce out throughout the month. Um, but I'm but I've also been noticing you know throughout the past year or so that more and more bridge cards are being offered at farmers markets. Um, and when I think of farmers markets, I think of well great food, but also those prices are higher than what you'll get at at your regular you know huge grocery store or something like that. But um, why is it that um, that that's now becoming an option for, for bridge cards to be at farmer's market. Um, how did that change occur, and um, is are people utilizing that, that option? We do find that they're utilizing that option. Um, in 2009, Michigan citizens spent more than $293,000 in food assistance benefits in farmer's markets, and that's when we had a significantly smaller number of farmer's markets that were participating with this program. Um, we expect probably within the next few months that we should be up to about 50 farmers markets in the state that will accept bridge card. And while it, it may be true that on off-season fruits and vegetables and such might be slightly higher, if our customers are buying the in-season fruits and vegetables, they actually get a really good uh, deal at the markets for uh, making sure that they're not paying high prices. We also find that a lot of our urban customers, where there's not as many grocery stores available, they have the access to the farmer's markets where they can go and get those fruits and vegetables, you know, on a continuing basis. Now, I'm curious, how does Michigan compare to other states with, in consideration for the number of people who rely on food stamps? Um, we're actually number two in the nation right now in our participation rate. Um, we've done a really good job of outreaching to people and, and letting people know that they have, may have the ability to receive assistance, and we've worked very hard to get that word out. Uh, currently, we're at right around 960,000 households, so a little under a million. We expect to top a million sometime in 2011. And this is really important to Michigan, not only for our people that are receiving the benefits because it helps them have good, healthy food and assists them to have a healthy diet throughout the month, but it's also great for our economy because what happens is that money is turned around into the economy almost immediately. Most people um, right now, before when it was uh, the first 10 days of the month, those 10 days saw that those benefits being spent almost immediately. And now we're stretching it out over a longer period of time, but it still has the economic impact. Uh, statistics show that for every $5 that we issue in food benefits, we actually see an economic activity in, of $9.20. So it's great for Michigan economy. It's bringing in all these federal dollars, and that's one of the things that we've really been pu pushing um, in 2009, I don't have the figures yet for 2010, but for 2009, we had over $3 billion in food assistance. So that's a little under $6 billion of economic activity that this program generates for the state. And, and what are the numbers like now of people that rely on food stands in comparison to other years here in Michigan? Well, I don't have the figures right on me, but we've had a, a significant increase, and in, in over the last few days, as our economic or few years, excuse me, as our economic downturn really progressed, um, I can tell you that from a caseload viewpoint, to give you a, a maybe just a framework to look at, in 2002, our workers had 
about 320 cases, an average on their caseload, and now they're at about 720. So not all of those are food assistance. Some of them are cash assistance or medical assistance, but that's a significant increase to give you an idea of, of how much it has increased in those eight years. I'm curious, what is the median age of, of someone that, that um, utilizes food stamps? You know, I don't really know that. I'm, you got me stumped on that one. Um, we have really worked because traditionally our seniors are, and our minorities are underserved, like the Hispanic minority, the Arabic minority, are underserved in this. So we've been reaching out to those, and we have a couple of programs in our state that um, target those, and, and we're in the process of working on uh, working with our community partners to continue that outreach so that we make it easier for them, more accessible for them to come in. Uh, we try and help them with the language barriers and such that type of thing. And for seniors, we have a program that they can actually go and apply at a senior center where they're comfortable, they know the people, it's very accessible to them. So I don't really know a median age at this point. I'm sorry, I, I can't share that information. And who qualifies to be on food stamps? Well, there's a couple of different ways that you qualify. Um, income, it's an income-driven program, and it's kind of a, it's a difficult budget for me to just say you allow this, that, and the other thing. But we look at several factors when we're determining eligibility. We look at the income that's coming into the household. We look at the expenses that that household is responsible for, such as what do they pay for rent, do they have, you know, whether they have heat and utility allowances, um, whether they have medical expenses if they're elderly or infirm. And all of that comes together, and then we actually have some deductions that we're allowed to give them based on federal policy. And once we find out what the total net income is, that's what drives what the allotment and how much they're actually allocated on to their um, card as a benefit. Now, I'm curious, um, for some reason I have the, the idea that many college students um, are able to utilize um, food stamps as an option, but, but when I was trying to find someone to interview for the show tonight, the person that I originally talked to said, no, actually we don't have a lot of college students, which was, which was new in, in my perception, because um, you know, a few of my friends have it and utilize it, and they, they really um, think it's, it's great for them. But also, I understand that I know some people that have tried to cheat the system in which they'll take some money out of their bank account and put it in their parents' account so that when the state looks at their account, it seems like they don't have a lot of money, so they'll go on food stamps, but later on they find out that, oh, this person really does have money. I'm curious, does that ever happen um, often where people try to cheat the system to, to get food assistance? We don't find that there is a lot of fraud in this particular program. When we've done... Um, we have a, a department called the Office of Inspector General that actually does investigations of allegedly um, fraud and abuse in the system. And when they've checked into this, they find that uh, at any age or in any household composition, whatever, our our percentage of fraud is only at about 4%, which is minimal with a $3 billion program. Um, as far as the college student piece is concerned for out of our households, we serve about 1.9 million people, and less than 1% of those people are college students. Wow. So it's really a minimal number. And what we also do is when 
if a college student does apply, the same rules apply to them. If they have income and they're, you know, we, we ask for that information on the application. So if they have income, we budget it, and that will determine if they are eligible and if they are how much, just as it would be any, any other person who is applying. So there's not, it's not a special impetus there to uh, come in and apply. And, of course, if, if for some reason we find that someone has given us false information, we do prosecute that, and we require that they repay it, and they actually get banned from the uh, program for a length of time. So there are consequences if people don't, aren't forthright and report truthfully what they have in the household and what kind of income they have. Well, on the phone is Barbara Anders. She is with the Michigan Department of Human Services, and she's on the phone to talk about food stamps as well as the new change in food stamp distribution here in Michigan. Barbara, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Great. You have a good night. You too. All right. Bye. You're listening to Impact Exposure. At the football game, Jim shows the telltale signs of being wasted. He starts flexing for the camera. He refers to his muscles as gunboats. He screams, how's this for a halftime show? Jim streaks the field. It's easy to tell if you've had way too many to drive. But what if you've had just one too many to drive? Never underestimate just a few. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Sunday nights, check out Sit or Spin from 8 to 10 p.m., where you can voice your opinion on what new music we play here on the Impact. Only on Impact Primetime. Morning, gentlemen. Want to hear our specials? Sure. First, we have the seafood special. It's been sitting around here for a week. We're known around these parts for our food poisoning. Wouldn't it be great if you could be warned of life's risks? If you have diabetes, you can. It's called A1C, a simple blood test that can help measure your risk of complications such as heart attack. To find out more, go to www.diabetesa1c.org. Brought to you by the American Diabetes Association, Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation International, and the Ad Council. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. Up next is Exposure contributor Emmanuel Berry, and she did an interview earlier this week with CNBC.com Cindy Perman about the U.S. job outlook for 2011. And that'll be coming up later in the hour. Again, just to remind you about our news here in the United States, um, Verizon announced today that it will begin selling the iPhone 4 in early February. The announcement means AT&T will no longer be the exclusive wireless carrier for the iPhone in the U.S., it also means that the iPhone users may find a solution to one of their ongoing gripes, the quality of calls using AT&T's network, according to NPR. The Verizon iPhone will operate on Verizon's existing 3G network. And now to the interview with Cindy Perman. Impact Exposure, Emmanuel Berry. Today we are talking about the latest job reports from the government and the industries that are doing the most hiring our guest today, Cindy Pierman, a coordinator for CNBC.com and writer for Pony In Here Somewhere blog. She covers issues ranging from personal finance to jobs. In addition, she is the author of New York Curiosities and a stand-up comedian. Welcome to the show, Cindy. Thank you. Um, so what did the job report reveal for jobs in 2010? Are we seeing increases, decreasing? 
Well, I'll tell you, the Friday job report came as a bit of a disappointment to the market. Um, it showed that just 103,000 jobs were added uh, in December. Um, and that's not a, a terrible number, right? You know, we saw a lot of job losses, uh, you know, during the height or, shall we say, the bottom of the recession. Yeah. Um, but what had happened was, in, you know, we're so desperate for good news on the job front that in the days leading up to this report, we really got our expectations ahead of ourselves. And so we really had expected so much more. Um, but when you really start to dig into the report and when you start to look at some other things, there are some really encouraging signs on the job front that this year will be a better year for jobs. Um, one really easy one was in that report Friday. You know, first of all, every time the government puts out this monthly report, they do revisions to the prior two months. Mm -hmm. So when, it's, when, when times are bad, what happens is you tend to see that things were even worse than we previously thought during those prior two months. Well, in this report, it showed that things were better in October and November. 70,000 more jobs were added in those two months than we had previously thought. So that's a real easy one right there. And the other thing is economists are starting to show signs of optimism that things are turning. And even in some of the numbers, you know, we're seeing more job listings. Um, one of my favorite indicators is uh, we're seeing more hiring for the people who are doing the hiring. Mm -hmm. So uh, the number of job listings with the word recruiter in them is up 20% in the past six months. So companies are starting to brace for more hiring, um, but it's just not going to it's, it's not as quick as we want, um, and it's going to be more steady, not this big pop. So how does that compare to over the last couple months, any, any job gains? Is it um, substantial compared to that or um, not, not so much? Well, I think uh, it's hard to make any kind of a trend. Um, th the one important thing to note when you look back on it is uh, for the past three months, we've seen job gains. You know, and that comes after, you know, a tough two-and-a-half, you know, year period. Um, so we're really starting to see a more consistent uh, trend of job growth. And so I think this, this is really where we're at, I think. We're starting to see the job market stabilize. You know, when you say improvement, people panic and they go, well, we're all still unemployed and, you know, how mm -hmm. many people and we don't see it. No, it's hard to see it. You're seeing signs of stabilization and you're seeing the glimmers of they're hiring for hiring managers. Companies are starting to be more optimistic. You know, small business optimism is up. Um, corporate profits are projected to be up. You know, uh, lending, it's very important. You know, credit was a huge issue during the recession because, you know, people panicked and they didn't want to lend money to anyone because they didn't know what was going to happen. So now we're starting to see that free up. So all these things are starting to loosen up. And one of the things companies go on is you and me. Yeah. You know, are we are we spending again? And if you look at this this recent holiday season, people are starting to spend again. They're starting to get more confident, and that's one of the first things companies look at when they start to, you know, let let the let go of the the purse strings on the cash that they have and start to actually spend it on hiring yeah, people. Yeah, prepare for some uh, growth, I guess, in companies. Yeah, I mean, what people are telling me is that it's not going to be a big pop. It's going to be a steady improvement. Um, but in particular, one person, he's a, um, Matt Ferguson, he's the CEO of CareerBuilder, um, he said in 2010 we saw steady gradual increases in mm -hmm. jobs across all sectors. So it's kind of like some steady growth last year. And 2011 will be even better for jobs. Uh, your blog, you also cited Ted Williams, the uh, YouTube sensation, <laughs> as a, a sign that the job market is looking up. Is that just your humor coming out? or? Uh... 
Well, you know what? I, I, I like to look at, you know, the serious side, but I also like to look at some of the, the quirkier things that you might not expect. But I think that they are, you know, interesting and important nonetheless. So, you know, that was so interesting. So, you know, that guy, if, if your listeners remember, that was the guy who, you know, he was uh, homeless. He was on um, holding a sign, you know, panhandling on an on-ramp um, and uh, in, in, this was in Ohio, mm-hmm. uh, the on-ramp of a highway, panhandling for money. And when a reporter walked up to him, they found out he was a former radio announcer, and he delivered this pitch-perfect radio announcement. And all of a sudden, you know, he was the biggest internet sensation. His, that video was viewed over 11 million times on YouTube. And there was this clamoring for hiring for him. Everyone from MTV to the Cleveland Cavaliers wanted him. Oprah even wants a yeah. piece of the Ted Williams action. Now, you know, when you have people, including someone like Oprah, right, clamoring (laughs) to employ a homeless guy who, it came out a little while later, has a 20-year criminal record, you know, with with some interesting, colorful things on his record. Um, You know, when you have people clamoring for the homeless guy, you know, it's probably a good sign for the rest of us that things might be turning up. So so what jobs are hiring for um, the future? What what kind of jobs are we looking at that are going to be opening up, possibly? Well, um, there's a couple of key areas to know, and I think this is really important for people who are unemployed, is, you know, it's not just what do I want, where do I want to go, what do I want to do. You really, and this, this recession taught us that, if nothing else. You've got to look at, yeah, this is what I want, but is there demand for what I do? Mm-hmm. And if so, where is that demand? Um, so there's two things to talk about. One is, like, industries that are hiring, and then one is positions that will be in demand. So a couple of quick things. In terms of industries, technology and healthcare are two really big ones. So maybe you don't have the skills to be a nurse or, you know, a computer tech, but whether you're in marketing, you know, these companies need to hire people across the board. They need business development, marketing, sales. They need everything. So accounting. Um, so maybe, you know, if you're an unemployed accountant, maybe you look for a job at a healthcare company or a technology company. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of specific jobs that will be in demand, um, there's three of them I, I would like to note. One is sales. Um, companies are, you know, sitting on a lot of cash right now. Their earnings are looking good. Demand is looking good. They're poising themselves for growth. So they're building the ranks of their sales forces to grow the business and bring in more business. Um, Second of all, customer service. They're hiring more people to keep their existing customers happy. Mm -hmm. And then the third area, which didn't come as a surprise, is anyone who works in technology uh, (laughs) should have a very good job outlook. Yeah, our our world pretty technology-centered at this point. And it's only, you know, when you see, especially we're now in a new boom cycle with tablets and Mm -hmm. new technologies, there's a lot more mobile technology. You know, technology has always been hot, but you're really starting to see a pop in some new technologies, which is just going to boost the demand even more. Now, is, is this hiring? Um, are these jobs? Is, these are all across the United States. Are there certain areas that are doing better with hiring? Or um, it's just kind of a widespread thing? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, there obviously there are always areas that are are better than others. Um, right now, um, the uh, I can tell you that, you know, a, a site like Indeed.com, they're a job listing site, they actually track the job market competition, mm-hmm. you know, and at the worst of it, you know, some of the, some of the, um, the bottom markets, you know, they were seeing like 20 people for every one job available. Um, so, of course, in the best markets, you know, you see a one-to-one ratio, one person per one job listing. Um, but, you know, even in the, uh, the bottom two markets, which in this case um, are Riverside, California, and Miami, Florida, um, it's like a one-to-five, one-to-six ratio. So mm-hmm. you're seeing the ratios, even in some of the, uh, the worst markets, you're starting to see an improvement. So I'll give you the top five job markets. And when I say top job markets, I'm meaning like 
one person you know, to one job listing. So your odds of getting a job are better based on the availability. So Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Maryland, San Jose, California, New York, New York, Cleveland, Boston, Milwaukee, San Francisco, and Hartford, Connecticut. Those so, all have a one-to-one ratio. So, yeah, far, far and wide spread apart there. Well, thank you so much, Cindy, for uh, joining us today. That's Cindy Pierman, CNBC.com contributor and writer of Pony and Here Somewhere blog. Manuel Berry, Impact Exposure. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. For the Michigan Storytelling segment, this is William Lankford. I would like to present to you uh, one of my favorite poems, specifically because it's about MSU and also because I just have a lot of fun doing it. Title? Hmm. Maybe we'll just call it MSU. I'd love to take a pen and trace it the way your faces make me feel, MSU. It is the shape of a graph of a pulse chasing heights. But I will not. It cheapen this somehow. Because if Facebook has taught me anything, it is that emotions are more massive than the sum of their parts, and real life will not fill in the blanks for you. Somehow I, less than, three you, doesn't capture the emotion in non-cyberspace. Real love? Real love needs love songs, or at least remixes of old ones. I've tried the latter for you. On the banks of the Red Cedar, there's a style that's known to all. It's Ugg boot stretch pants north face, and we wear it spring and fall. We are a city in the bosom of an awkwardly blossoming change. We are God's topographical graffiti, each brown and white arm, arm and arm, a cafeteria chain gang, 45,000 strong. We are white veins climbing our bodies' heights that go spelunking in our eardrums, iPod feeding the baseline inseparable from our sanity. We are under the thumb of debt and growing fingers to reach into an absurd darkness with hope, which means we are the fight, fight, raw team fight against a slump-backed economy. Against anyone who says that education is not a ladder and MSU is not a powerhouse. 
We've got at least two, plus you and you and you and you, which means our acid rain can't refrain but to spread seeds that grow politicians and poets, tree huggers and lumberjacks, both because of and in spite of your classrooms, like oceans, like seas of bodies. I've come to love you, MSU, the way poets love, love poems. And for the Michigan Storytelling segment, that was William Langford. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.